When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. This is 2020. Trump starts off the new year confronting the two most consequential things any president can face. The United States, according to some, could be on the brink of war. And Donald Trump is personally on the brink of an impeachment trial. Let's start with the latest explosive news out of Iraq. On Friday, in one of the most aggressive escalations of the confrontation in the Middle East, the U.S. killed Iran's top military commander in a drone strike at Baghdad's international airport. The strike was ordered by President Trump in the last couple of days, according to CNN, killing Qasem Soleimani, who headed the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' elite Quds Force and was the second most powerful leader in Iran, following Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Soleimani was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American troops in the region and was the architect of Iranian-backed terror across the Middle East. And as President Trump said in his remarks following the strike, the torturing and killing of fellow Iranians. Suffice it to say, he will not be missed. But what happens as a result of what many are calling impulsive and what some are even calling a reckless act of aggression on the part of the United States, neglecting to inform our partners in the region, failing to ask Congress, upsetting an already tenuous relationship with Iraq and effectively torching any nuclear negotiations with Iran, well, there will be fallout. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told CNN the strike was meant to deter an imminent attack. He was actively plotting in the region to take actions, a big action, as he described it, that would have put dozens, if not hundreds, of American lives at risk. Uh, we know it was imminent. This was an intelligence-based uh, assessment uh, that drove our decision-making process. The risk of doing nothing was enormous. The intelligence mm -hmm. community made that assessment, and President Trump acted decisively. Now, Iran has responded, promising, quote, harsh revenge. And a senior administration official said counterterrorism officials are already on the lookout for possible retaliatory actions, which they warn Congress could come within weeks. There's a lot to discuss in terms of the geopolitics, and I will do just that in a bit with General Wesley Clark, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. But there's also the politics here at home. We have a president who ran on getting us out of the, quote, endless wars in the Middle East, and some are saying he just might have started a new one. He's deployed thousands of additional U.S. troops to the region. There's the partisan nature of this sensitive operation. The White House briefed at least one Republican senator, Lindsey Graham, ahead of the strike, but kept Democrats largely in the dark. 
Republicans are praising the judgment call to carry out the strike. Democrats are cautioning that the administration needs to have a plan for the next steps to keep us out of the dire reality of another war. At the same time, President Trump is staring down another sort of dire reality, the reality of impeachment. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is still holding the articles of impeachment, still waiting to get assurances on the Senate side that they would run a fair trial. Can she wait forever? Seems like the majority leader on the Senate side can. Taking to the Senate floor yesterday, Mitch McConnell reiterated his stance on the standoff with Pelosi. About this fantasy that the Speaker of the House will get to hand design the trial proceedings in the Senate, that's obviously a non-starter. So for now, we're content to continue the ordinary business of the Senate while House Democrats continue to flounder. So he's not budging. Will any GOP senators, though? We'll see. The rules of the Senate trial have yet to be set, but they require a majority vote, which means Democrats need just four Republicans to break, break ranks in order to get a majority to pass rules that could include calling witnesses, setting the daily timing of the trial, and other process questions. A new report from Just Security reveals in no uncertain terms that the president himself ordered the freeze on aid to Ukraine. Will that persuade four Republicans to agree to the Democrats' proposed Senate rules? We don't know yet. But one thing is certain. The president is dying for this trial to begin. Here's the deal. Trump wants the trial because he'll use it to do the thing he was impeached for in the first place, trying to damage his rival, Joe Biden. He wants it so he can claim exoneration after, when and if the Senate doesn't convict him. He wants it so he can play the victim, his ultimate source of strength, which he used during the Mueller probe, during his campaign, and in trying to discredit the 2016 popular vote, which he lost. It's his calling card. And he wants a trial because, according to his own campaign anyway, it's boosting their re-election efforts. So Trump starts 2020 with two huge flashpoints of his own making, both with national security implications, both with massive political consequences. With me now is Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Um, Congresswoman, let's get right to it. Mitch McConnell clearly is in no rush on impeachment. How long are you comfortable with Nancy Pelosi withholding the articles from the Senate? You know, she's our leader. We've been out uh, for the holiday recess for 10 days. I know she knows exactly what she's doing, and you have a leader for a reason. You trust her. I know she'll discuss with her leadership team when we get back what's going on. But, you know, there are a lot of other things that we do need to be worrying about. And she also never takes her eye off of those from the crisis that we're all talking about this weekend to the fact I just my blood pressure. I was my New Year's resolution was to stay calm. Yet when I hear Mitch McConnell say we do nothing, we have passed 400 bills that are, are sitting at the Senate just waiting for them to be taken up. So we're going to keep doing things about issues we all promised, President Trump, Senate, House, to lower prescription drugs. And that's going to be a major focus. My bill on yeah. PFAS will be up the first week in January. Yeah, and I understand that there's a lot on the legislative agenda, but obviously front and center are these impeachment articles. Here's what your colleague, Congressman Lloyd Dodgett, said on CNN this week. Take a listen. I wonder, without witnesses, and, and there's no sign yet that, that the Republican majority will allow witnesses to be called, should Speaker Pelosi refuse to send over the articles of impeachment at all? 
Well, I would certainly support her in doing that. Uh, Congresswoman, do you agree? Would you support it never going to the Senate? Or do you think the House needs to hand it over eventually? I think we've got to all get back in the room and have discussions during this next week. I think it's been very, we've got new information while we've been on this uh, holiday break of facts that weren't available. There are still witnesses that we wanted to hear from in the House that I think are very important, be it someone who's trying to prove their innocence or having a discussion about our national security. And I'm going to wait and see what the facts are. I'm not going to throw kerosene on fires that uh, we've got going into places. And when we get back next week, I'm going to trust our leadership, working with the leadership in the Senate side to continue to move this forward. Okay, well, we'll be watching and, and waiting for that. Uh, meanwhile, Chief Justice John Roberts seemed to take a, a veiled swipe at, at President Trump in his year-end report, decrying the spread of false information on social media. Um, in the Trump era, he's sort of been tasked with keeping the judiciary above the fray. Um, what do you hope to see out of him as he presides over what may end up being a very partisan impeachment trial? You know, I think we have a constitutional crisis in this country. Our Constitution was one of the greatest documents written in the history of the world. It, it was very clear on three separate branches of government which balance each other out. The president deeply resents the Congress, doesn't recognize the legitimate role of the Congress, and I'm very concerned at how people have tried to partisan, make a partisan mm. issue out of the judiciary. I think that <clears throat> Justice Roberts is very aware of the critical role that the judiciary branch pl plays, that he does know that it has become far too political, and that he will take his role. I, I respect the Chief Justice. I don't yeah. agree with him, but I respect him. And I think he's going to try to do a good, solid, impartial job of sitting in that chair. Well, to a point you just made, I think it's a really important one. Um, Congress was not consulted on the killing of Qasem Soleimani, as you know, um, nor was it consulted on his decision to remove troops from Syria. Despite impeaching the president, Congress hasn't really been able to constrain Trump at all when it comes to foreign policy. What are you guys going to do about that? I think we're at a, at, at a very serious point right now. And that is that when it comes to national security, when it comes to protecting our country, we cannot be partisan. And yet, within hours, this event had become one of the most partisan events I had seen. I don't think that there is much disagreement. I'm sure there are some that don't... He was a very evil man that was responsible for right. the death of thousands of innocent, right. of not only American lives, but lives around the world. But there are consequences to such action. Republican President, President Bush, Democratic President, President Obama had considered this potential action yes. uh, in the past and were worried about the consequences. I do believe that there was some kind of imminent threat. I don't know what it was. We haven't been given the facts. We were not briefed. The, the breakdown in trust between the intelligence committees and the executive branch is a danger to this nation's national security. And I think, I hope when we all get back next week, we're going to take that deep breath I keep talking about now for the last couple of weeks, because we can't deal with this as Republicans or Democrats. We are Americans. And do we you have believe, to protect... Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but no. as Americans, do you believe Congress, not Republicans, not Democrats, not the House, not the Senate, Congress should have been consulted uh, uh, when it comes to this attack? We have cl clear 
laws that say that the executive branch needs to brief the Congress. The, my understanding is is that a document did come to the Hill this afternoon. But I do think that this breakdown of trust between the intelligence committees, the group of eight, is very disturbing. And I, yeah. I think they should have. And it's a legitimate balance of roles. And I will tell you point blank mm -hmm. that I do believe that the Congress must, must be the ones that determine if we're going to escalate into a war. I think we all are worried about the potential of war, not only in the Mideast, but there is everybody that you talk to, Republicans and Democrats alike, know that there is a real danger of escalated terrorist attacks. Yeah. And we've got to work together to protect ourselves. This partisan bickering isn't going to protect anybody. Well said, and Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, I hope you get to take that breath <laughs> and, and calm down because it's about to be a very busy January in 2020. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank I always you. appreciate your time. Happy New Year. You too. Okay, calls for revenge and retaliation against the U.S. at the funeral for Qasem Soleimani in Iraq today. What does that mean exactly? I'll talk to the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO about where we go from here and he's the candidate with the deepest foreign policy background. But does Joe Biden's experience help or hurt his electability argument? That's all coming up. Stick around. What the United States did yesterday should have been done long ago. A lot of lives would have been saved. We took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. Not surprisingly, the response to the Trump administration's killing of Qasem Soleimani has fallen mostly down partisan lines. Democrats disapprove. Republicans are congratulating the president. Senator Ben Sass, in a statement, said General Soleimani is dead because he was an evil bastard who murdered Americans. The president made the brave and right call. Senator Tom Cotton echoed that, saying Soleimani got what he richly deserved and all those American soldiers who died by his hand also got what they deserved, justice. You know, I agree with all of that. The question we should have, though, is did anyone consider what comes next? There's a lot of hyperbole going around on both sides. Let's cut through the spin. Republicans are right to point out Soleimani was a terrible, evil monster who killed and tortured thousands across the Middle East through his proxy militias and would have most certainly killed thousands more if he could. That should matter. And if, as the administration says, he posed an imminent threat, there's likely legal standing for what Trump did. And people insisting this and this alone will start World War III, will awaken some long-dormant beast that's been sleeping peacefully for years... They ignore the fact that Iran has been Iraning for a very long time and without much to stop them. Iran, the regime, not the people, is a bad actor, full stop. But contrary to what most Republicans will acknowledge, there are some serious problems with what we just did. For one, there's a reason we have a policy against taking out foreign political leaders. Proportional retaliation. There is no doubt killing Soleimani put some Americans in danger. For another, the intelligence justifying the killing, considering the intelligence justifying the Iraq war and the so-called video that sparked a protest in Benghazi, well, we're right to be a little skeptical. Then there's killing Soleimani in, on Iraqi soil, where we have U.S. troops not likely to engender much support from our Iraqi hosts. 
Finally, not one vote was cast in favor of this attack. When the president acts without Congress in matters of war, he acts without you. Joining me now to discuss the consequences of Trump's controversial foreign policy move is General Wesley Clark, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. General, I want to start with some breaking news. President Trump just tweeted warning Iran that the United States has identified 52 Iranian sites and, quote, will be hit very fast and very hard if Iran retaliates. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's probably a good statement by the president. I mean, I, I think uh, I think the administration understands that uh, there's a serious risk of consequences here. Um, I think they understand that it's unlikely that the Iranian regime is going to now come hat in hand to the negotiating table and say, okay, you killed our number two guy. Uh, let's talk. Uh, we're ready to surrender. Right. They're not going to do that. Right. So he's trying to establish uh, a warning again that they better not attack. It's probably not going to work. I'd say the odds are that given Iran's politics domestically, given the way the administration in Iran or the regime in Iran has handled itself, it's probably going to have to for its own credibility, to hold its followers together, to intimidate those mm. in Iran who don't believe in it, it's going to have to find a way to strike back. But well, here's the other thing that they have ahead. to understand, Essie, mm -hmm. that they're looking at the United States. They understand our politics pretty well. And, 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 and President Trump obviously understands our politics pretty well because he accused President Obama in 2011 of wanting to start a war so he'd be reelected. So the, the Iranians have to understand that they're playing into the domestic politics of the United States in a way that strengthens the president of the United States mm. when they strike us. There'll be lots of criticism of him that's partisan. But the fact is that Americans rally around the leadership when Americans are in danger. That's just natural. Well, and yeah, so, and so uh, this could deter Iran. Okay. The well, odds I, are against it, but there yeah. is a, that, that, that's a factor that has to be considered. So I want to make sure that we're not overreacting or underreacting. That's important to me. So I don't want to needlessly scare people, but I also don't want to underestimate the geopolitical consequences of all of this. So I look to you, the expert. You tell me, uh, you know, people are talking about this setting off a World War III. How likely is that? Put this in context for us. You know, I wouldn't say that this particular act is the trigger that immediately we go to World War III, this, this act might take us, probably takes us to a new phase in our 40-year struggle with Iran because we have been um, disproportionate in our response. And we've taken out somebody that they really value. So they're going to want to retaliate. And then the question is, what will we do? Let's say we do take out the 52 sites that the president has mentioned. What will they do then? Mm -hmm. And then what will we do in response to that? Because the, the, the difference in this operation versus, let's say, the operation that I led in Kosovo yeah. uh, 20 some odd years ago is um, Serbia was a, a country of 10 million people surrounded by nations that were European and wanted to be part of, the, of Europe. Uh -huh. They wanted to be part of NATO. Um, Iran is a nation of more than 80 million people. Uh, it's too big. It's too diverse. It's too difficult geographically to ever think that the United States is going to go in there and occupy that country. Uh, 
-hmm. We didn't do very well when we were against a smaller country like Iraq, so we're yeah. not going to go in there. So after you pound it and so forth, what are you left with? Uh, at best, a failed state. At mm -hmm. worst, uh, a state that maybe they do have nuclear weapons. Maybe North Korea is going to give nuclear weapons. Um, maybe Russia will come to their aid. We don't know how the geopolitics of this could spin yeah. out of control. Well, in so general, it's what too about early to say it's a path to war, but it's dangerous. Okay. What about Congress? Um, you know, Republicans rightly demanded that Obama seek congressional approval before airstrikes in Syria. Uh, Republicans were equally right in their outrage over Obama's extrajudicial killings and secret drone program. Should Congress have been consulted in this case, or is this different? Well, I think that you don't want to, and 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 I know there's been a lot. There's this is a foreign policy is a partisan issue, and it's become increasingly partisan over the last 30 years. But but here's the here's the nonpartisan view: is okay. the president of the United States needs the power to respond when American lives are in jeopardy. Now he has notified Congress. He's gone through the War Powers Resolution. He had to notify Congress in 48 hours. He's he's done that. And um, so we don't want to take that away. But okay. I do think that Congress, congressional leaders should have been consulted, both parties, and at least told what was going to happen so they weren't surprised. That's normal hmm. protocol. Um, and so that wasn't done. I think the, the Intelligence Committee certainly deserved the full briefing of why this was necessary yeah. at this time. But, but having said that, this was a bad guy. And... Right. Um, Right. You know, there's no question that that he deserved it. The, the, the issue is what happens next. So I, to, to that point, exactly. This was a bad guy. Is it possible that this action was the correct one? But because this administration's foreign policy has been impulsive, it's been disorganized, it's been imprudent, I think even disastrous at sometimes. That doing this thing that may be correct, but it was dangerous because of who did it. Is that kind of a way to look at the the partisan politics of this? Yes, I, I think it, here's here's the problem. The president of the United States has this president of the United States has been um, he's departed from conventional American foreign policy. He's been more idiosyncratic. And he's been less responsive to our allies than he has to a bunch of dictators. And so the people that would normally support us and say, yes, yes, he's done the right thing, they're looking at this and saying, well, why did he do this? And right. what, where's the evidence? So we need our allies when we're doing something like this. They provide us intelligence. Uh, they provide us backup. They provide us an alternate way to try to solve these issues in the region through diplomacy and negotiations, through back channels. Uh, so we don't want to be the Lone Ranger here. And it's possible that when you do overwhelming response, disproportionate response like we did, you'll shock the Iranians so much they jump back and say, oh, my God, we have to stop. But there's nothing in the 40-year struggle with Iran that indicates they would do that. Yeah. They're more um, likely to come back on us. Uh, real quick before we go, um, President Trump said yesterday um, that we're not seeking regime change. I've heard sometimes it, it described as uh, seeking behavior change. Is that possible in, in a place like Iran? It, it, it might be possible. 
Uh, there are different factions we know inside the Iranian leadership, and we know that the man we took out was one of the ones who really pushed for an imperial vision of Iran and, uh, and going throughout the region. But there are others who have the same views. Um, I, I would think that it would be very difficult for us to mm. accept that Iran um, would credibly change its behavior long term. Yeah. That was the yeah. point of the negotiations. We were supposed to move and get and get a, a, a better commitment by Iran on its behavior. Right. And right. this was the intention why President Trump left the agreement in the first place. Yeah. So if we could get back to that, fine. But it's, I'd say the odds are against it. And I'd say now, the right. overreaction or disproportionate mm. response here makes it more difficult mm. to get back. If you believe that there's a core of U.S. interest, then mm -hmm. this action may not have taken them. But if you believe well, that there's a separate set of interests the president has, he's probably on more solid ground because when the Iranians respond, it's natural that Americans are going to yeah. rally against Iran. Yeah. Uh, General Wesley Clark, thanks so much for your time and your insights. Thank tonight. you, I really appreciate it. Okay, up next, in light of the latest news out of Iran, how will that impact the man with the most extensive foreign policy background in the Democratic primary? Stick around. November's a long way off, but elections can turn on a dime, especially on two issues, the way voters feel about their money and the way they feel about their safety. The current frontrunner, Joe Biden, would like to run on the Obama economy and his long record of foreign policy experience. Two small issues. Trump's economy is pretty good, and Iran is pretty bad. That sets the table for some unpredictability for the former vice president. But one thing that's been keeping him in first place, no matter the obstacles, his perceived electability. His campaign raked in $22.7 million. It's the highest fundraising quarter for his campaign. That follows a strong debate performance last month, and polls corroborate his ability to take on Trump. In CNN polling from the 15 states decided by eight points or less in 2016, only Biden is competitive with Trump, who edges out Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg, but within the margin of error. And Biden bests Trump, according to a recent poll, in the battleground state of Florida. So with a month to go before the first votes are cast in Iowa and a volatile political climate, can his electability continue to keep him afloat? With me now is Democratic strategist Joe Trippi. Uh, Joe, let's just start with Iran. Um, Joe Biden had a very muscular response to Trump's attack. Take a listen. Or I'll read it. Uh, President Trump just tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox, and he owes the American people an explanation of the strategy and plan to keep safe our troops and embassy personnel, our people and our interests, both here at home and abroad, and our partners throughout the region and beyond. Now, Joe, uh, Biden's foreign policy experience, I think, cuts both ways. He certainly has the most of anyone in the field, but as Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg have enjoyed pointing out, his record isn't all highlights. Uh, do you think Iran bolsters his case for experience, or do you think it cuts into it? 
Uh, I think it bolsters the case. Uh, it, he, he does have experience. He has made uh, voted. You know, he voted. He was for the war in Iraq. Yeah. That's that's true. But he's also lived through that experience. He, uh, we were all told that the weapons of mass destruction were there. Many Democrats, John Kerry, Clinton, a whole yes. bunch of uh, the majority of the party uh, believe that. As did our allies when they joined us. And so Absolutely. now you have this situation where uh, the administration is saying. Uh, it was there was an imminent attack and we have evidence but they haven't shown that to our allies this isn't about democrats and republicans there are we need allies to trust us in the moves going mm -hmm. forward there's one only one person in the race on the democratic side right now mm -hmm. who can pick up the phone and call any of those world leaders oh. uh, and have lived through much of that experience with them in the obama administration start to try to pull the pieces together uh, and so I think that that is a strength of Joe Biden's doesn't mean he's not going to have to explain that vote and, and that yeah. uh, his detractors will come after him for it. But they, they don't have that kind of foreign policy experience uh, and that world leader well, experience Joe, said, that he's built up over the years. You said there's only one person in the race right now. Um, I don't even want can we not can we not I don't even want to go with the possibility of more people getting into this race. Let's discuss that at a later time. But Trump, well, yeah. Trump will start with a 2020 <laughs> advantage. He's got an arguably good economy and two, you know, big name terrorists are in the ground. How does Biden answer for those two things? Well, I mean, first of all, there again, Biden has consistently, as you pointed out, uh, shown in places like Florida and other uh, swing states that are going to matter in the Electoral College uh, vote that he he in, continues to to ha have a better shot in those places right now yeah. uh, than anybody else in the race. Again, when I'm talking about other people, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders can't emerge or somebody, uh, Amy Globetar or someone else can't emerge to challenge him with the, mm. with that. But right now, he's he's stronger than anybody else. I'd much rather be Joe Biden or uh, Amy Globetar even than uh, or Bernie. Uh, than, than mm. Warren and uh, the mayor at this point, only because my experience is Iowa closes very quickly. Uh, I was there with Howard Dean. We had the lead right now. Whoever's in the lead right now tends to have someone else go by them. It's been the case every time I've been in the state uh, mm -hmm. that I've seen. And so right now, I think uh, Biden, where Biden and Gobachar are are sitting isn't a bad place now okay. can someone else win there and then roll into florida maybe those things will in california and other places things will change we're way far away um the last debate before votes is coming up on uh january 14th does biden have to have a good performance that night uh, yeah, he, he does. Uh, but like a lot of people, a lot of vice presidents and presidents, you know, Obama wasn't so great the first debate uh, when he was running for re-election. Mm -hmm. uh, Reagan wasn't either. So uh, I think what's happened is, uh, yeah, Biden's first debates weren't all that great. They were disaster, the first one. Uh, but I think, again, uh, he's gotten better with his performance. His last debate was his best. Somebody's yeah. got to come uh, and try to uh, challenge him. I, you know, obviously there's three or four in the race that can, but yeah, mm -hmm. the debate's going to be important. He has to have another well, good performance. It's uh, only here on CNN. We'll be watching. I know you will too. Joe Trippi, thanks so much for coming on to me tonight. Appreciate it. Great. Okay, he's second in the polls, but first, like by a lot in fundraising, has the Democratic establishment been sleeping on Bernie Sanders again?
the red file tonight, Bernie Sanders is leading the pack, not in the polls, but in the fundraising halls. His campaign announced he raised a whopping $34.5 million in the last three months of 2019. That's more than any other Democratic candidate has raised in a single quarter so far. This occurred, to remind you, in the same quarter that he suffered a heart attack, which had many pundits wondering if his race was over. Oh, not even close. In fact, he's out on the offensive, hitting at frontrunner Joe Biden, telling The Washington Post this week, it's just a lot of baggage that Joe takes into a campaign, which isn't going to create energy and excitement. He brings into this campaign a record which is so weak that it just cannot create the kind of excitement and energy that is going to be needed to defeat Donald Trump. Sanders has also been criticizing the U.S., uh, I'm sorry, us, railing against the corporate and established establishment media for implying his campaign is flailing or ill-fated. Considering these latest numbers, does Bernie have a point? Are we, the media, the Democratic Party, voters even, sleeping on Sanders? With me now is Republican strategist Alice Stewart and Democratic strategist Basil Smigel. Basil, um, the fundraising numbers are good. Yeah. Very. Yep. The line in 2016 was that there was more energy around Sanders than there was around Clinton, who was leading by all the other metrics. Um, I used to say he was a cause, she was a corporation. Mm. Does that same energy still belong to Bernie Sanders? And if so, does that make Joe Biden the new Hillary Clinton in this scenario? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I do think if you look at, you know, the, the way candidates have created this narrative around the been there, done that sort of candidate of experience, if you go back to 2008, 16, and now Joe Biden is sort of the third iteration of that yes. candidate. But Bernie Sanders, look, he's been running since 2016. And if you t if you don't take him seriously, you do so at your peril. Hmm. If you look at the way the DNC has changed their rules, not just in terms of uh, the fundraising, but also better access and in terms of the superdelegates, that's Bernie Sanders supporters that hmm. have pushed hmm. that. He's done that also in states uh, with state parties. So a lot of what Bernie Sanders brought to the table in 2016 um, is now rooted in the infrastructure of the party hmm. going into this election hmm. cycle. Yeah. And so we shouldn't take him for granted. We should take him very seriously, and the fundraising numbers bear that out. Alice, I've always said if you're if you're complaining about the media, you're losing. Uh, <laughs> but does Sanders have a point that for a guy who essentially came in third, um, you know, last time he's not always considered a front runner. He's not even often uh, described in those terms. Every candidate feels as though they're not getting the adequate media coverage that they deserve. Right. He just happens to complain about it a little bit more than <laughs> others. And he yeah. will complain about big money and he'll complain about the media. But the key to success in a primary and in a general is having big money and having the media. The, the good thing with Sanders to, to what you mentioned was the fact that he has done this in 2016. He knows mm -hmm. how yeah. the ropes work. He knows exactly what to do in Iowa. It is a unique beast. And mm -hmm. while he's got mm -hmm. tremendous fundraising now, and he has he's second in the polls uh, nationally, but in Iowa specifically, he has the tremendous benefit of having done this before. The Iowa mm -hmm. caucuses are a unique beast. You yeah. have to go to one night, one place. There's 1,600 caucuses across the, the state. Yeah. So he's able to pull out his playbook, dust off the Rolodex, hit wash, rinse, repeat, and I think he'll do well. Well, Basil, I, I was reading a WAPO piece uh, this week that described some of the concern uh, about Bernie among Democrats. Um, former Ohio Governor Ted Strickland, um, a, a Biden supporter, said that while Bernie shouldn't be discounted, um, he worried that Bernie's supporters might not turn up if he's not yeah. the nominee, yeah. uh, saying it'd be deadly to the Democratic Party if he didn't do everything he could to support the nominee. In that same 
article, they quoted um, a voter who said it was hard for her to get over the feeling that Bernie didn't do enough to help Hillary in 2016. No, that's very real. And going back Has to he what, assuaged those I don't, I don't know that he has. I know that he's tried, but I don't know that he'll ever completely get over that. Yeah. There are a lot of people that still hold him accountable for the Hillary's loss in 2016. Yeah. And look, it, if you go back a couple of months, there were reports that Elizabeth Warren was calling Democratic insiders to say, don't be afraid of me. If you support me, I'm going to still em sort of embrace the party infrastructure and institution. He has not returned. He has not done the same. Uh, according, the reports haven't suggested that he has. And so for Elizabeth Warren, she was sort of heading that off by saying, I'm going to actually go in and make these calls. It doesn't seem like Bernie has done that. I don't know that there are voters that were concerned about that in 2016 that have not gotten over that yet. Yeah. And that is a concern. And it goes back to sort of that Pete Buttigieg uh, purity test that he talked yeah. about in that debate. That's where I think a lot of well, Democratic insiders Alice, are Alice, I've been saying for months, these two are going to have to kill each other off at some point. <laughs> you right. know, Warren, exactly. Warren and Bernie are fighting for the same voters. Uh, exactly. And those people are going to have to make up their minds. And I think they will after Iowa. And, and you have to remember, after Hillary won the nomination, I spoke with Tom Perez about this recently, the DNC chair. He and Sanders did the unity tour. They yeah, went really. around and tried to galvanize people. Uh, might not have been to the degree that Hillary folks would have wished they would have done that, but I know that the DNC is committed once they do rally behind a candidate, he is going to galvanize them and really unite the party behind someone. Is this going to take that to beat Trump? We will yep. see if Bernie voters will yeah, go true. where right. Tom Perez tells them. We'll have to see. <laughs> Alice Basil, thanks so much for yeah. being here. I appreciate thanks. it. Okay, it's popular to point fingers at politics when we discuss the rise in hate in America. But an alarming increase in anti-Semitic attacks in New York shows how tangled the diseased roots of bigotry actually are. Stay right there. That's next. In the days between Christmas and New Year's, our country suffered a double tragedy, a shooting at a Texas church and a stabbing at a rabbi's house on the seventh night of Hanukkah. Whether fueled by mental illness, irrational anger, bigotry, or pure unadulterated hate, these attacks capped off a truly hideous year for America. 2019 saw the most mass killings of any year on record, according to a database compiled by the Associated Press, USA Today, and Northeastern University. It follows a rise in hate crimes with a surge in violence against Latinos. And America has suffered a swell in anti-Semitic attacks over the past two years. You may remember that here on this show, we've talked about the rise in white nationalism and the role politics may be playing, but another kind of anti-Semitism has hit us right where I sit tonight in New York City. Since December 1st, there have been 17 anti-Semitic attacks in New York, including a woman who allegedly slapped three women in the head and face and another attack where a woman allegedly hit another woman in the face in front of her three-year-old child. That's in addition to the shooting at a kosher grocery market in Jersey City, New Jersey, that left two dead. And then on Saturday in Monsey, New York, a man entered a rabbi's house during a Hanukkah celebration and injured six people, one of whom is expected to have long-term brain damage, according to his family. Unlike some others, the attacks in New York and New Jersey cannot easily be explained by far-right white nationalism. While politics may play a part in our hate problem, politics most certainly will not be the solution. Tomorrow, thousands of Americans from around the country will gather in Brooklyn, New York, to march for no hate, no fear. 
with me now is Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, the executive vice president of the New York Board of Rabbis, which is one of the many groups sponsoring the march tomorrow. Uh, Rabbi, we have all been reeling from the spate of attacks in the tri-state area this past month um, and at the holiest of times. How are you doing? It's a very difficult time. I've made some shiva condolence visits to see families who are struggling so uh, in this difficult period, who are suffering so much. It's inexcusable. There is no defense for anti-Semitism. There's no defense for hatred. So I'm hoping tomorrow we're going to see a massive turnout, thousands of people, Jewish and non-Jewish. Cardinal Dolan will be there. Mm -hmm. Reverend A.R. Bernard will be there. Mm -hmm. People from all different branches of religious life will be there. And those of no religious particular affiliation will be there. All to say this has to stop. We have to stop pointing fingers at the other. The left points to the right, the right points to the left. We've got to stand together and face this. The other thing I think is this. We've got to say very clearly that Hasidic Jews are part of the Jewish family. Right. We can't separate Hasidim and non-Hasidim because then people think, oh, they're different, they're other. Mm-hmm. We're all together on this. We belong to one another. Mm. Um, what do you think is motivating the surge in anti-Semitism in the New York area? Essie, first let's say anti-Semitism has never gone away. Right. We've seen this since Pharaoh's days. Yeah. Uh, it's here now for a while. The sewer covers, you know, kept it uh, under the lid. Mm. Now it's been exposed. I think there are a host of things going on. Firstly, we're living in a very contentious climate. Okay. You know, it's, it's pointing fingers, always blaming the other side. The yeah. language is crude, it's coarse. Yeah. Secondly, the Internet mm. has exacerbated uh, a lot of these inner feelings. I was at a conference with uh, members of the uh, uh, Internet uh, community, and I asked this question. Do you think you've done everything possible to curb some of this hatred, these hateful platforms? And they said, well, we're doing as much as we can. I said, I don't think so. Mm. Also, what are kids here at home? What do they hear from their parents? Mm. What do they hear on the streets? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that it's coming from different places, but we've got to address it, uh, you know, front, frontally. And also the curriculum in school. We have to be very clear that you can be smart with education, but education doesn't make you moral. So there has to be a moral values curriculum. Well, I'm so glad you just said all of that because, you know, I talk about politics for a living and I am the first to point out when political leaders on both sides um, engage in racist or anti-Semitic rhetoric or policy. But I feel like we have to start in our homes, in our schools, in our communities, having really tough conversations that have nothing to do with who's in the White House or who our elected officials are. That's hard to do, believe me. When I tweet about trying to do that, I get a lot of responses. You can't take politics out of this, Essie. What do you think? Well, a lot of these people who perpetrated these hateful acts have no political affiliation. That's right. Many of them didn't vote, Mm -hmm. right? My mother used to say to me, if you want to clean up the world, first clean up your room. So I think all of us need to look at our rooms, at our places. What are we teaching these young people? What examples are we uh, demonstrating? You know. Young kids need not only the hand to hold on, the shoulder to lean on, but an example to learn from. What example are we setting for these young kids today? Rabbi Potasnik, good luck tomorrow. Thank Thank you you so much much for coming on. Happy New Year. And uh, I hope to see you again. We'll be right back. While we were enjoying our holidays, it was a silent night in one corner of the earth. For the first time since the French Revolution, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris did not host Christmas services. 
In April of last year, you may recall, the iconic and historic cathedral suffered a tragic structure fire. In the end, the building's spire and most of its roof was severely damaged, as were its upper walls. In the wake of the fire, President Emmanuel Macron said the cathedral would be restored by 2024. He launched a fundraising effort that brought in over a billion dollars just that month. But the cathedral's rector, Monsignor Patrick Chauvet, is saying he has doubts as to whether Notre Dame can be saved at all. Telling the Associated Press he believes there is maybe a 50 percent chance that it can be saved and a 50 percent chance that the 50,000 tubes of scaffolding that had been installed for renovation work prior to the fire will fall onto the building if they try to remove it. During the fires, the scaffolding welded together into a twisted mass of metal weighing down the structure. It must be removed to make the building safe for restoration, but removing it might just destroy it. Either way, it will likely be a long time before the public can re-enter one of the world's most beautiful and iconic houses of worship. That's it for me, but a quick programming note before I go. The response to this film has been incredible. Do not miss it tonight. Before Beyonce, before Lady Gaga, Linda Ronstadt was the first female pop icon. CNN Films' Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice, airs tonight at 9 p.m. on CNN. And up next, the latest headlines from CNN Newsroom. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.